Hello, my name is Angel Wood, and this is Crime of the Truest Kind. exciting news to share with you at the beginning of today's episode. The Crime of the Truest Kind merch store is open for business. I'm very, very excited about this. I handpicked some cool designs and some cool items. They are all set at special store launch pricing until March 22nd. Go peruse, buy some stuff, support the show. Thank you very much. And of course, let me know if there's something else that's not there that you're interested in and I can make it happen. I have the power to do such things. I have many people to thank. Thank you, David. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Tom, who all contributed to Buy Me a Coffee. There is a Patreon in the works. I am planning that for the next week or so. I will definitely let you know when it is live. I would love your support there. Another thank you to Pat from New Hampshire who left an amazing review, five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Please, more of that. Thank you, Pat. And thank you, Pat, for the news item information. I will most definitely read up on that case that you presented to me. All right, I ask you for all of those wonderful things. Listen to the show, subscribe, rate, and review. That's very helpful. And follow the show online. Crimeofthetruestkind.com, where you can find the brand new merch store. Crime of the Truest Kind on Facebook and Instagram, at Truest Kind on Twitter, at Truest Kind on TikTok. I can't say that with a straight face, but yes, I am on TikTok. And um, I do post videos there from time to time. And there will be heavy dog content. I actually had to kick Otis out of the studio because he was making way too much bulldog face noise. Oh, and it was Otis's birthday. He's five. This is episode 13. This is part three of the Station Nightclub Fire, West Warwick, Rhode Island. This is part three of three. The Station Fire was 18 years ago. We mark the 20th anniversary of September 11th this year. Each seemed like a lifetime ago, a distant memory for so many of us who weren't directly affected. But for so many more, each event was catastrophic. When I think back on February 20th, 2003, the same kinds of feelings come to me that I felt on September 11th, 2001. I was on the radio when both events took place, and I saw firsthand what it did to people. Now, as a radio host then, we were live in the studio playing music, interacting with people all day long. It's not always the case for radio now. A lot of radio stations that you'll listen to at any time of the day, it's pre-recorded. So if a catastrophic event happens, somebody has to rattle into the studio and sort of undo the programming that they had been doing. But back in 2001 and 2003, respectively, we were live on the air. What you said, you could not take back. It was out there forever. Live without a net. So we were interacting with listeners all day long by email, instant messenger. Texting wasn't much of a thing then. 
Texting was sort of in its infancy then. It was the phones. That's where the action took place. These events upended the communities that they belonged to. The station nightclub fire killed 100 people. Hundreds of others were injured physically. Countless others were damaged emotionally. Over the course of this series of episodes, I wanted to peel back the layers of what a mess this really was and how we are still looking for answers and how we are still clearing the debris of misinformation. In this episode, I speak to John Laurenti. He is a friend and a colleague. We have worked together in radio, most recently at WZLX in Boston. And as you will hear, we have a long history and strong connections in New England radio. John Laurenti has worked at WAAF and WBOS, WODS, WHEB, WGIR, and was at WHJY, the home of rock and roll in Providence, Rhode Island, for 17 years. He was friends with Mike Gonzalez, the DJ known as Dr. Metal, who was one of the 100 who died at the station. We talk about his memories of Doc, the venue, the fire, the impact on the community, and the part that live radio plays in times of disaster. We go over some evolution of rock and roll, and we name check about 20 radio people throughout. We spoke on the weekend of the 18th anniversary. This is our conversation, our long conversation. And trust me, it was even longer. John Laurenti, right out of the gate, we worked together for a while at WZLX. And we also sort of shared time at another radio station in New Hampshire. Yeah. Shelby replaced me. You did Shelby stuff. That's right. That's right. And none of us are there anymore. No. Um, So (laughs) thank you for talking to me, John. We've been friends for a long time. So let's clear that right out of the gate. Radio people tend, that tends to happen to radio people. We we tend to, you know, like each other. Yeah. Most of most people, most, most of, of the time, there are d bags, no yeah. doubt about it, no doubt about it. And we can name a list, but we're not going to. Let me ask you this first: You worked at WHJY in Providence yep. for quite a while, so you uh, were you were part of the Providence music community. Yeah, tell me a little bit about how you you're a Bostonian, grew up in Dorchester. Tell me a little bit about how you started radio in Providence, and then I want to talk a little bit about your experiences after that. I graduated from Northeast Broadcasting in May of 86. I started at ZLX the week, the second week that station went on the air hmm. as an intern and slowly but surely worked my way up to board up on air. It's weird how I ended up in Providence. There is a legendary general manager by the name of Bill Campbell who was responsible for a lot of great talent in Boston. He ran MJX for a while. I think he's. I think he was the one that hired David Allen Boucher and he hired Nancy Quill. I did an event for ZLX at Tufts University. I was hosting it for Ann Cody. She was sick. It was the first live appearance I have ever done in my life. And I was scared <laughs> shitless. And he came up to me after the show and he said, uh, you're pretty good. You know, what are you doing? I said, I'm just working part-time at, you know, at ZLX and just, you know, making some money here and there. And he goes, well, I'm the general manager of WSNE down in Providence. He goes, why don't you, why don't you come down and see if I can put, give you a spot. I'm like, great. So we set up a meeting. This is all pre computers, pre internet, pre cell phones, everything. So I meet with him and met with a few people who eventually became my friends down the road and they didn't have anything for me. So he calls up Bob fish, who is the owner and general manager of, of WHJY and WHJJ. And he said, uh, hey, I got some kid down here from Boston wearing his best bar mitzvah suit. He's more in tune to be a rock guy. Do you have anything for him? 
He said, sure, send them over. So I go over. I meet with Carolyn Fox. That was September, November of 87. Thanksgiving comes. I get hired. I'm, you know, low man on totem pole. So I was there from 87 to 89, then went to AAF for five months from July of 89 to New Year's Eve. Took a little time off, about 11 months. Ended up back in radio at WVBF. And in the interim, HJY was looking for an overnight guy. And the PD hadn't changed. So I reached out to him. I got interviewed. And Doc was also a part-timer. He had been doing the metal zone at that point for quite some time anyway. And Doc got the job. And the thing was, is that my, you know, my two years there, people that don't work in radio don't understand how you become part of a family. Yes, yeah. there are there are D-bags out there. There are people I bet you haven't seen in 20 years you could pick up a conversation just like that. It's it just, it's a, we're, we're a unique community. We're a misfit bunch. We are the island of misfit toys. <laughs> yes. My first night back was, and the only reason I remember this is because it just, it, 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 I had such a great time at, at HJY. Uh, I was October 9th, 1991. It was their 10th anniversary. Again, since I was low man on totem pole, everybody from the station went to the birthday party at the civic center to see Alice and Chains open for Van Halen. Doc was doing overnights, and it was my first shift back. And Bill Weston says to me, uh, and Bill is one of the greatest PDs I've ever worked for, and I've worked for a bunch, but he really built my foundation on how I treat people during my time as an APD and a, and a program director. So he said, no, Doc wants to go to the show, so you do 7 to midnight, you'll be fine. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not ready. And he said, don't worry, everybody that will be listening to HJY will be at the Civic Center anyway. So uh, that was my Vote first night. Vote of confidence, John. Yes. So my first night back is there. And I hadn't, you know, I hadn't seen Doc in a while. He comes in. We do our crossover. We had been friends prior to that, you know, from my early time there. And I'll never forget it. He said, he said to me, he said, you deserve this position. Hmm. And I said, well, thank you. I said, but I get it. I said, and I'm not, I said, you've been here longer. And he goes, that's right. Seniority, baby. Seniority. <laughs> And everybody does a doctor medal, and that's usually what it is. From 1991 to 2005, I was part-time. I was production director. I was afternoon guy for 10 years with Jeff Charles. Uh, eventually became APD music director when the nightclub fire happened. And I'd already been an APD MD at that point for about two, three or four years. And you had been to the station a number of times. I, numerous times. Yes, right? Our, our good friend, Kenny Young, who is a utility player at ZLX now. Yes. I love Kenny uh, Young. He's not he's a D-bag. No, not a D-bag and one of the tallest gentlemen you'll ever meet in radio. That's right. Uh, I think I got him in and a bunch of his friends to see Winger or Reb Beach. I know it was an offshoot yeah, of, of Winger. That sounds about right. And that night was probably just as packed as it was for Great White. Yeah. Maybe a little less. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When the fire happened, Kenny remembers how tightly packed it was. We were at the soundboard, and it, it was. It was a tiny, little, packed club. Yeah. And, you know, he thought back to that night. And, you know, the thing is, and, and this is a discussion for another time, but, again, our, our good friend Carter Allen, who we worked with at ZLX, you worked with him at BCN, right? He was already gone from BCN oh, okay. by the time I was at BCN. Carter and I had a we had a really good talk one night about there was a reason Great White did well in Rhode Island. There is a reason that AAF was as big as it was in the western part of the state because that was, you know, black t-shirt crowd. 
BCN never played Great White or Winger mm-hmm. or Poison or Motley Crue early on. So people were looking for this great music. And it, it's not a slam against BCN because that gave, and I'm going to mention some colors that don't exist anymore. It gave, you know, the CGYs of the world a chance to play those bands. It gave AAF, it gave HJY. So when bands would come through town, they would play Providence, but there was nowhere for them to really play Boston because Boston never en- embraced those bands. Right. You know, sure, the suburbs did, the kids from the suburbs did, but the city proper, no. So that's part of the reason, you know, that the, the station nightclub was so packed that night because Great White was one of those bands that we just, you know, embraced. Uh, and, and plus, you know, working in radio when hair bands were you know still big and still in existence then to just flip the switch and bang grunge is here you know i mean yeah, you yeah. you saw Put a lot you, of bands out of business a, a lot of bands that had been signed yeah lost everything yeah uh you know and i forget what band it was it was a a, a, a hair band on columbia that said their poster was on you know, behind the receptionist and the next time they went for a meeting, it was Alice in Chains <laughs> poster. So they knew that their time was over. <laughs> but just to, you know, just to give you that, that dynamic, like I had seen Mick Taylor at the station nightclub. There were 20 people there. Wow. But he played Boston yeah. packed, you know, so yeah. that's, that's the difference. It's the same with, you know, so many other bands. And that's why, you know, I always said BCN didn't, you know, shun those bands. They just didn't play them because that's, that's not what Oedipus played you know mm-hmm. was more alternative what we now just define as classic rock i had been to the station a bunch of times i had helped jeff uh you know just they were new to the business so he would ask is this band right for us who was booking the station when the Dadarians took over that's not clear to me i, I don't know who physically was booking the bands but mm-hmm. jeff would call me because okay. a they were an advertiser b mm-hmm. we were friends mm-hmm. and it was you know uh, I'm just going to throw a name out there. Hey, Dawkins coming to, you know, you know, what do you think, you know, what do you think they're worth? And so I got to, you know, I, I had to check with other clubs or people in the, in the business to see what they were charging, you know, just because you don't want to pay $40 to go see a band at a club, yeah. especially a club that time. I imagine deals were different back then too. Oh yeah. It's way different. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this fire has changed a lot of things as well, but you know, Jeff would call with questions and Michael, from what I remember, ran the day-to-day stuff. He was the business guy. And because Jeff was the TV guy, he handled the marketing, the promotion. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd have him on doing interviews on the, you know, on our, on H, on HJY. You think clubs are struggling now. There wa- There is a time that, you know, a lot of clubs weren't getting the right bands mm-hmm. or they thought they were getting the right bands, but they weren't getting the crowd, you know? And so that's where you work in, in tandem again. It's different now, but the Strand in, in Providence or, or Lupo's, if they were having a little bit of a hard time selling tickets, nine times out of 10, we'd have someone f- come in and do an interview just to sell tickets. And that was how it worked. I mean, even though I never worked at BCN, BCN is the reason I do radio. It was nice to say that I, I worked at the BCN of Rhode Island. And yeah, yeah. That's not, and that's, you know, HJY is still going very strong in Providence. Yes. And my former intern is now their dear leader, <laughs> Doug, <laughs> Doug Palmieri. So <laughs> the thing about Rhode Islanders, radio fans in general, I just shouldn't say Rhode Island. They're passionate about the radio station. At one point, we were their friends mm-hmm. and we were mm-hmm. there. You know, Carter said it best uh, when he wrote his book about BCN. 
radio was the original Facebook. Absolutely. You came to us to get information. You That's came right. to, you know, you could call us up and it would be like, you know, hey, what time is such and such going to start or whatever? And and that's what you did. I'll get to it, you know, after we talk about the fire, because that was something that came back. Yeah. It, was, it was something that you forgot about because the world was 24 mm-hmm. seven. Uh, just for your listeners, my first shift at HJY, I was doing 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. That's when you had six jocks doing four-hour shifts. Mm-hmm. So you'd have someone on from 6 to 10 at night, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., and then I, the new guy gets to do the overnight, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So, on a, And I would do Friday, Saturdays. and Party times. Yeah. Four o'clock on a Saturday morning, the phones were still going. Yep. Not all, you know, not all four lines, but you'd get, a, you know, two, three lines every once in a while if you said something or if it's like, hey, if you're up, let me know you're out there type mm-hmm. thing. And, you know. Mm-hmm. So that happened, you know, for a long time. And then we all got older. We got married. We are not staying up till four o'clock in the morning anymore partying. Uh, You still can. And so time went on. But like I said, once we get over the whole thing of of the fire, I can get into all that aspect of how the community related to us, Mm -hmm. which was was nice. I want to talk about that. The night of February 20th, 2003 changed everything for the state of Rhode Island. Really. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Generations were affected by this fire. There were parents of young kids who passed. One thing that's never come up, though, Angel, are the people that left mm. and went to other hospitals, you know, smoke inhalation. Mm-hmm. We had, for workers, we had six people go to the nightclub, five came back. Mm. But there were other people, as time progressed, that worked at the radio station with us and went to the show. And I didn't know that. And my intern, she went, left. She had smoke inhalation. And so she lives in Norwood. So she went to Norwood Hospital that night. Yeah. So how many other people went to a hospital, say, in Taunton Mm -hmm. or maybe in Connecticut, Mm -hmm. you know, a day or two after? So uh, and the thing is, they have said, had there not been any snow on the ground, there might have been more people that perished. Because they needed that. Yeah. There are a lot of people who were burned who came out and laid in, in those. And, and there was a lot of snow that day. Oh, yeah. We, we had had a lot of snow. And uh, speaking to firemen from different houses, Warwick, of course, is where the airport is. Mm-hmm. So there's two ways to get in to the station nightclub. And it's that main road. So firemen that I knew said that they were driving up one way or coming down the other. They thought a plane had crashed. Wow. Because there were people just on the sides of the road. Mm-hmm. in shock, tattered clothes. Some were burnt. And you, you just go, what? But where do you go? And it's really weird. A, a friend of mine, uh, his name's Rob Riff, and he worked at the radio station with us as well, but he went as a fan. And he put his picture up yesterday on Facebook. And I really haven't been on Facebook a lot lately, but he was in the doorway. And I always remember him telling me this story. He was in the doorway. He was on top of the people mm. his sneakers he was wearing converse high tops he said his sneakers were melting Ugh. and somebody grabbed him and threw him into the parking lot and he said when i turned around everyone in that doorway was on fire oh my god that's how close he came mm. he's not the only one and mm-hmm. the other thing that my partner jeff charles brought up 
The Station Nightclub had been a restaurant for many, many years. Right. Thir- 30, 30 Until plus. about 91, it, it really changed. And people that were in the fire, and I've spoken to many of the survivors, some people had said that they felt like things dripping on them. Yeah. And people thought it was yes. the insulation. It was the grease in the wood frame. Ugh. It had been a restaurant for 30 years. So all that grease just sat in that wood and just saturated it. And it, and it, it now, granted, some of it could have been the foaming, some of it could have been electrical wiring. Yeah. But yeah. overall, it affected that. And one of the things I regret that night, but because I had so many things going on, first of all, Big Jim Stearns, not to be confused with Big Jim. He was doing seven to midnight that night and we were doing a Guinness promotion the next day. And so the guys from Guinness were in the radio station and Jim, since I was there, could I help him do the interview? Doc had come in and just to break down the fourth wall, Doc recorded his overnight show. I mean, I'll never forget this night. This is how it went down. It was about nine ish. And the Guinness guys had brought pizza. And so Doc was handing out pizza to people that were in the station. It's like, help yourself. And it was fine. In the radio station. In the radio station. Mm-hmm. So he recorded his show. And then we were in the midst of the interview and the door was open. And he caught my eye. I waved to him. He knew we, both Jim and I were going to go to the show mm-hmm. as soon as he wrapped up. I was working on the music logs for the upcoming week to move into the house we're in now. So that's why I was there that late. So I said, once you're wrapped up, let's go and we'll get on there. The thing that sucks is I never got to say goodbye. Yeah. I waved to him. Yeah. Just around a little bit after 11, I'm about to wrap things up. And he says there was a fire at the station. Now we had just moved to the new building off of 95 where HJY is now. Mm-hmm. Been on 95 South. It's the building right after the big blue book. So I'm thinking the old station in East Providence because it was empty and abandoned. Right, right. So when you say the station, I'm thinking the old, our, our, I'm not thinking the nightclub. Why would you at that point? Exactly. exactly. Jokingly, I said, dude, if you don't want to go, that's fine. I'll, I'll scoot down myself because I told Jeff I would, you know, Dedarian that I would, I would go. And he said, no, no, no. He said, Scarpetti just called me and said that there's a fire at the nightclub. And I'm like, oh boy. So Doc had already recorded his show. My boss, Joe Bevilacqua, uh, was a regional VP for Clear Channel. He was in charge of the rock stations. He was in Maine, or at least northern New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So I'm calling him like a fiend. Mm-hmm. Doug Palmieri was the APD. I couldn't get in touch with him. And I'm like, I got to pull his tracks. I can't. All have I'm him. thinking right now is that his voice, the doctor's yeah. voice is going to be on and Lord knows what happened. Exactly. So, and I didn't, you know, you know how, you know, we've done things even before voice tracking. If you went to a show and and left early, you'd be like, hey, what a great time we had tonight at the garden or the civic center or whatever. Yes. And I'm like, I don't need him to say that. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. of course, by midnight, I can't ignore the situation because now it's all over the place. So I physically pulled the tracks. What I regret is the people that called I never recorded their phone calls and I wish I had mm-hmm. because I had so many things going on. Like, you know, is Jeff going to come in? How can I get in touch with Joe Bevilacqua? I'm still trying to do that and do a radio show mm-hmm. while there's a major catastrophe happening in our backyard. We had a, a less major catastrophe on FNX the next morning. Of course, you probably rem- remember that how the FNX radio network was across New England oh, and it was yes, heard at 103.7 in, in Providence at the time. 
Well, we had no idea because of the way the computer systems, the computer systems would overlap. We'd have one set of commercials playing in Providence, another set of commercials playing in the Boston area, another one playing in Maine and New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And we didn't hear what was going on in Providence in the Massachusetts studio. Well, evidently, we were still playing the commercial for the Great White Show at the station in the morning. I cannot apologize enough to anybody I'm so sorry that we didn't have the foresight to take that off the air. People were calling us, begging us to stop. And we're like, it, oh, my God, we were we were dumbfounded. It happens. You know, Ugh. I mean, I mean, you can't, you know, that's part of the downside of computers, if you yeah. will. I finally got in touch with Joe a little bit after midnight. I was on by myself from midnight to one. Uh, but like I said, the reason I regret not taping the phone calls is there is a photo of a bouncer on the side of the stage. Mm-hmm. Now, there's. I don't want to call it an atrium, but there was some glass. Like, like a sunroom kind of thing, right? Yeah, that's like, because it was a restaurant, you'd put yeah. seats there. Well, that's where, popped the pool, out. that's where the pool tables were. Right. So for the show, they moved the pool tables. And I'll never forget the sight lines. You could be on the side of the stage, but you would be behind the lines, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You'd be looking where the band is standing. You're not in front of the stage. Mm-hmm. And so a guy calls up. And, you know, I'm just like, what can you tell me? Blah, blah, blah. And, and I and I said, how did you get out? And he said, I went out with the band in the back exit. Huh. And I said, well, how? I said, I've already heard someone say that they weren't letting anybody out that door. And he said, I was behind the bouncer. I was at, I was where the pool tables usually are. So he went out with the band, but nobody else did. And he should have allowed them to go out because mm-hmm. everyone went to the front doors. Now, I don't know if the book touches upon the fact and I'm probably talking out of school, but I had heard that, you know, I had to tell Joe Bevilacqua about the Coconut Grove fire, that if, you, if you're if you in a restaurant or a bar and you have to pull the door in, that's not code. From what I had heard, and again, just hearsay, mm-hmm. Michael... There's a was, lot of that. <laughs> Michael and was, I, and I'm, I'm living proof of that because I, I heard a lot of hearsay and I was schooled a little bit. <laughs> Michael would flip the doors so they would push out when the fire inspectors would come in was up to code and then they'd flip them. So they would pull in. So that's how people got stuck in the doorway. And we assume based on the people I've spoken to doctor, just for people who, when you go to a show, when you see a a DJ, you know, doing announcements Mm -hmm. that is predetermined by either the band or their management or their road manager. And it's like, look, you go up five minutes before the band. Sometimes it's like you introduce them. This was one of those things where it was about, I think, five minutes uh, before the Great White had taken the stage. So Doc did his spiel, mm-hmm. hopped off the stage. One of the girls wanted to talk to him, and he said, I'm going to hit the head, and I'll be back. Then the show started. So we assume that he was... And again, when you're on the air and you know a lot of people, you're going to get stopped before you go anywhere, whether it's to the bar, to the bathroom, whatever. So we don't know if he made it into that tiny little hallway where the bathroom is, but... He was, I know he was found with a bunch of people and it was, you know, mostly smoke inhalation. I mean, that thick mm-hmm. smoke from everything, from the foam, the everything. It was an accelerator. That's why the flame rose so high so fast. Right. You know, I've always said that it's, is there a need for pyrotechnics in a club like that? The other thing is, no. is that that club no. did have high ceilings, mm-hmm. but there's an overhang mm-hmm. where the stage is. So instead of being 11, 12 feet, it was eight feet. Fire. The sparklers. The sparklers were 15. Yeah. So if he had moved them a couple of inches forward, 
we might not have this discussion right it's now. such a comedy of errors for me because i i understand that there are there's a segment of of families and survivors who say the owners are solely to blame and authorities sure. authorities were involved and we know that there were inspections that took place and how come we didn't know about this foam etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean we can go we can do this over and over for the rest of our lives and then i found out that michael married michael married one of the bartenders so she couldn't testify against him <laughs> oh so i mean you know <laughs> oh i i don't know that i don't know that That's... okay um <laughs> it there's just there's so much to this it's so horrible to watch, even all these years later, that people are still like, we'll never, ever get the real answer. I don't think we ever really will. I think there are many to blame. There, There is a documentary that is being worked on, and it's going to feature Jack Russell. Really? Because I'm mad at Great White still. I, I am too. How do you I, feel about Great White? I could give two shits. I'm so um, pissed off. Um, you know, Jack threw his road manager under the, bu- under the bus big time. Jack lost a guitar player. Yes, he did. But there is a documentary coming out. Jack Russell is involved. That's the one that people remember. Jack said that he's involved. They're doing a documentary about him. It's not about him. It's about the fire. Mm. And so uh, Eddie Trunk is in it. D. Snyder is in it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be in it. And they're all, you know, D and, and Eddie Trunk. And I know there's going to be a handful of other people as well. I'm not saying Jack should have come on HJY to apologize, but he did apologize. But it wasn't heartfelt. It's he like every I shouldn't say every lead singer, but he has LSD lead singer disease. You know, those flames were there for his ego. For they the were show. for him to feel relevant. And this is what I said. They were for him to feel relevant and make them feel like they were playing arenas when they were playing state fairs and dive bars. Their star had fallen. Well, yeah. I mean, there for the grace of God, go I because I said and I didn't mean this mean or anything but all i kept thinking was let's just say aerosmith didn't get their second resurgence mm-hmm. that could have been steven tyler playing the station mm-hmm. it's a comparison that's all it mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. jack ran right out the fact that the bounce was like that's the band's exit there's a fire dude get out of my way that's what gina russo said yeah gina, well, gina russo is the one who I, I saw her say that the book doesn't say that exactly i mean, i'm still i'm still reading the book trial by fire I don't know that that is the same story that the book gives us, but I could be wrong. I know yeah. Gina Russo said we tried to leave that door and we were told we couldn't leave. Yeah, as and fact, as Gina, a result, she's very she got very very hurt. Gina was the one that told me that she spoke to Doc before he went to the bathroom because mm-hmm. Gina is down in front, and she got lucky. She only got second degree burns, from what I remember. I think on her arms and me. She lost an ear. Yeah. Uh, she had a very large burn on the side of her head. She has burns on her arms. She was not supposed to live. It was very, very bad. It was very, very bad. They couldn't identify her at first. She kept telling them, I have my ID in my pocket so you can identify me. Tell me what the feelings were in the days and weeks after the fire in, in Providence and in the, the community. Jeff Charles, my partner, came in at one. We were on the air until five, and then Paul and Al came in a half hour early. I mean, because that's Joe Bevilacqua. I give him all the credit in the world because at that point, I mean, Paul and Al in the morning show, so they were probably asleep, you know, got awoken by their program director saying, can you get in, John and Jeff are on now, and of course, they got filled in with everything. So Jeff and I left at five. I came home, and 
it got to the point where we were interviewed by Channel 5. Jeff and I were interviewed on by Channel 5, just audio. And my brother-in-law had been up early and walked into my older sister and said, you know, there was a fire in Providence. They said a DJ died. Oh, John's fine. thinking you. Oh. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just know I slept till about maybe 1030. Mm-hmm. But all morning long, it got to the point that my wife, Sandra, was just like, he's home. Yeah. That's all she had to say. So that was, you know, family, friends, everybody. So I go back to work and of course we had, you know, we had to have a big staff meeting and, you know, how do we handle this? And that's again, I think Monday was the day I was told that I did every Budweiser night Mm -hmm. except for that one. It sounds a lot like what happened post 9-11 with radio stations. We were inundated with phone calls from people trying to get advice and give advice and et cetera. The thing was... Not so much Friday because there was so much going on and we had to be careful how to say it. We had to look and see. I think we I think we had eight pairs of tickets and only two pair were picked up. As much as people don't like iHeart, I do feel that, you know, they shouldn't have been sued for $22 million because they had nothing to do with it. They were just the big pony in the room it's that had the money. It's incredible to me. The lawsuits are incredible to me. And the fact that, you know, Jack Russell play, paid what a million, million. dollars. That's as much uh, as his as their insurance. It was capped off at a million dollars. The Dedarians, granted, did jail time, but only paid eight hundred thousand dollars. Anheuser Busch mm-hmm. got sued. The local dis- distributor of Anheuser Busch, yes. they I think they paid, they settled for sixteen million. Steve Scarpetti, who's doing afternoons now, was our van driver, along with Jeremy Gately, and they came back. I'll say around three o'clock in the morning and they were covered in soot, smelled the smoke. Thankfully, because Guinness was there, they left a cooler of beer. And that was the first thing they both asked for. I need a beer. And I said, coming right up, just happened to be that way. So we didn't bring them. We just said that they were there and that everybody that was there for us is safe. We just can't find Doc. Hmm. And this is so, before they really knew the the actual, oh, car, yeah. the real carnage. Yes. They didn't really know for a while. We had a, a gentleman that was an AM producer. His name we, his name was Mark Goddapp, we called him Mountain Man. Heart of gold <laughs> would scare the crap out of you. did two tours of duty in Nam, And he pulled me out of the room during a break and said, keep an eye on those two. And I'm like, yeah. why? And he goes, yeah. trauma. Two tour, he goes, two, two tours of duty in Nam." He said, they saw some shit tonight that they're never going to forget. And I've seen those looks before. Thankfully, they're both flourishing young men, whether they're older now, but they try to get together. I don't know if they got together this year, but they try to get together with the other people that survived. Just that little unique circle from the mm-hmm. HJY people. Not everyone knew Mike, uh, Dr. Metal's name. His real name is Mike Gonsalves. So he was friends with a lot of state troopers, a lot of nurses, a lot of doctors, because he worked the overnight. They knew him. Yeah. So when you have when you have state troopers and local police officers and fire officials and EMS people and nurses calling the radio station because we're saying we don't know where Mike is. We can't, you know, the the people saying I've checked the manifest. I know Mike's real name. I haven't seen because people went to so many different hospitals. But yeah. thankfully, we had such a great reach. The hardest thing was when Mike's dad and his brother kept calling. And around, and this is, it's not a joke, it just happened to be that time. But at 4.20 a.m., Jeff didn't say it on the air, he just said it to me, 
because at that point the phone call started to die down and we started to see the fact that one of the things about being on 95 is the contingency plan that was in effect for an airline crash was what happened at the station. I would see three ambulances go up, two go back, uh-huh. two go up, three uh-huh. go down. So it was, and that was just 95 North and South. So I don't know what happened on the Southern part of the state. And he said to me, he goes, he's gone. We're not going to find him. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how, you know, and I'm like, how can you say that? We didn't find out until I want to say Monday or Tuesday night. We got the announcement. I forget how Joe Bevelock would found out, but he got the phone call. Uh, they had identified him through DNA, hmm. and it was myself, Doug Palmieri, my general manager, Bud Paris, and Joe Bevilacqua. We made the announcement on the air, and then, uh, as I may quote David Johansson from Scrooged, Niagara Falls. Yeah. I mean, it's four yeah. grown men just bawling their eyes out. Dealing with that, you know, again, this is someone that I've, you know, I, I we had so much fun times together, and in the concept of any place you work, it doesn't matter if you do radio or if you work at a car dealership or retail. We spent our formative years together. All of us, we were we were all single at one point. We all got married. Some of us got divorced. Some of us did leave, and some came back. Yeah. We had kids, and un- and unfortunately, we had death. Yeah. We went the whole gamut of life, and so that whole week was nice to say that the community came back to us. The phones were not stopping. What was the community response like? Are you guys okay? Yeah. You know, because we're there for them, but it was nice to get that. Mm -hmm. You know, it reminded me why I got into radio. It reminded me that, yeah, whatever, whatever any consultant tells you, okay, their lives are busy, but they took time to call and say, you know, we still listen. We just don't call you enough, but are you okay? How are you holding up? You know, and they'd tell us funny stories about Doc. They'd tell us things he would say or if they knew people, you know, and then we ended up having, you know, we, we've had, we had Gina in quite a bit. We had a, a, a wonderful guy by the name of, um, his first name is Donovan. I want to say Donovan Williams. He was going through a divorce. Donovan was, and was painting his apartment. And I said, are you a great white fan? And he goes, no, he goes, I just wanted to have a beer. And he goes, I did order a beer and uh, I never got to finish it. Oh. And he suffered massive burns. Mm. He was in a coma in Boston. He was one of the, I think he was one of the last three people that were in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he's partially blind. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, there are some people that got burnt that still support Great White. And that's, if that's what you do, you know, so they look at it as an accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah in a way but when you when the lead singer doesn't I don't want to say he doesn't feel any remorse I'm sure he has to live with it but like I said use the platform for HJY and, and come and, and, and apologize and, and make it worth you know our while uh, you know so we're getting phone calls from the listeners uh, but you're right we ended up getting phone calls from a lot of radio stations around the country like look were there jokes made yeah there were horrible jokes made I remember a, a- familiar New Hampshire radio station was telling really inappropriate jokes about Station Nightclub Fire. Yeah. And, and it, it they're, they're all hacks. They're all hacks. All of those. I'll never name them and I will never tell you the terrible jokes, but they're all hacks. Yeah. And I heard some of them, but I would say overall, you know, when you get a call from Atlanta, Georgia or yeah. Texas mm-hmm. and they're calling us to say, hey, we're really sorry because we've all done shitty bar gigs in dive bars 
but we all go to shows. I mean, that's yes. how it resonated with me the most. As somebody who goes to shows, I mean, we go to these shows and we pack in these rooms with a level of confidence that we're going to be able to walk out. You know, there's tons of stories. Uh, you know, there's a story that I heard, you know, from a, a very reliable source, a very good friend of mine who worked at the radio station. He was in a band and one of the guys is like, hey, do you want to go down to the station and, and see Great White? And yeah. he's like, nah, I, you know, I got to get up for work in the morning. I've seen them before and I'm sure they'll roll through town at some point and I'll see them at Great Woods or whatever it was at the time. They get together the next night just to hang out as friends. The guy said, yeah, I went down, but by the time I got there, the fire had already started. So he said, I was pulling people out of windows and, you know, I was trying to help. And, you know, what do you, you know, I see that. And his sister came in the room. Like, so they weren't, they, she lived in another apartment. You know, they, they, you know, they were older. It's not like they were living at home with mom and dad. Come to find out that he, he said, how did you get out? She goes, someone grabbed me and put me on the hood of a car. Her own brother saved her. You, you hear those stories. And like I said, I lost a friend and I lost 99 listeners who I probably had met numerous times. Yeah. They you probably know? called in, requested a song, sure. won tickets from you sometime sure. or other. Yeah. So close to home. And I've, I've always felt that. And I didn't, I didn't work as closely to the, the Providence listeners as you did. There's not, you know, there's not a day go by day that goes by that. I don't think of Mike because I saw him every day. I don't believe in spirits or ghosts. It's just me. Doc was notorious for hooking up with um, exotic dancers. He would use my office. And the reason I know this is, is there had been one day that I went in and it smelled of glitter. Yeah, in the yeah, air. There was, there was, I don't know if there was any glitter. Well, there might, well, maybe. I saw him that afternoon. He was coming in to you know, uh, do a show because I locked my office because radio stations are notorious places for things just being lifted. Getting up and walking away? Yeah. So, uh, and that's where all the, you know, that's where all the music was, my, you know, computer, the whole deal. So I said, Doc, were you, were you in my office? He goes, uh, yeah, wasn't the first time though. And I go, <laughs> well, I said, how do you, how'd you get in? The door is locked. He goes, I know where Lariv, that's our engineer. He goes, I know where Lariv hides the key. I'm like, okay. And I go, you don't, he goes, no, no, no. I use Doug's desk. So it was a cramped little office. I was asked to write an article for FMQB, which was uh, a trade magazine for radio. And what I wrote about was what we talked about earlier, how we still are important to the listener. The community called us, like I said, to see if we were okay. Prior to that, I, a music director schedules the music, just so you people know. And, and so that's his or her job is to make sure that the separation is fine when we are saying, you know, people say, oh, you guys play the same song all the time. We try to be very cognizant that that doesn't happen. Right. He didn't Shouldn't hear the who song every hour. <laughs> exactly. So he had a thing about uh, Rosalita by Springsteen. Hmm. And I actually for, have not heard that in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so for some odd reason, the way I was scheduling it, Rosalita was showing up on Friday mornings at around 4 a.m. in that time frame. And he goes, hey, what's the deal with Rosalita? And I go, I, I don't know. I, I said, it just pops up. He goes, I'm playing it like every, it seems like I'm playing every Friday. So, Angel, I'm going through a log. It's Friday, 4 a.m. Rosalita pops up top of the hour or second song in. And don't I smell smoke in my office. Wow. And I just kind of mm -hmm. brushed it off. And I was like, huh, okay. I'm doing the article for FMQB. I read it once. 
I edit it. I read it twice just to make sure it flowed and everything was, you know, grammatically correct. Just before I hit enter, I smell smoke again. And I said, Doc, if you're fucking with me, I get it. Cut it out. <laughs> I hit enter and that was the last time I ever, I ever smelled it. Someone said, well, it triggered the effect. I go, no, I wasn't at the fire, but I smelled smoke. Mm-hmm. Like there was a fire. Like I had to get up when I, that Rosalita thing, when I got up and just checked to see that there was nothing happening. And it was just one of those things, you know? So it just, and again, he was just, he was a funny guy. And then when we did the tribute to him the Saturday after the nightclub fire, and by this point, I was exhausted because I had spoken to news outlets in different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. I had done interviews in newspapers, trade magazines, Saturday at the Civic Center, Lou Brutus, who's a, a dear friend of mine and, and was great enough to get out of Providence and, and do wonderful things and uh, host a national show now and, and, and has been doing it for a long time, works at Sirius XM. Through his connections, we were able to get Gene Simmons to talk about the doctor. There's a famous story where Gene had come to Providence and went bowling with Lou Brutus and Sh- uh, Sharon Shafino, who was our music director. And I think Doc, um, Lars Ulrich, same thing. Uh, and there were a lot of there were a lot of artists that you know Lou put together for this tribute for Doc. And so we go to the Civic Center. It was free to get in for anyone who wanted to celebrate Doc's life and the 99 other people that perished with him. I happened to be on stage, but I told Jeff Charles, "I don't want to talk. I'm done. I, I, I've, I'm so talked out at this mm-hmm. point." He starts doing because there had been talk about FEMA helping us, helping the, the survivors. Mm-hmm. And I still didn't understand how, how that fit in. But it wasn't it was a disaster that affected. And many they people. weren't really getting a lot of support in the beginning. New because it was, a, you know, a second or third rate rock band that killed 100 people. Well, and it was rock and roll fans, you know, right, they were right. they were being and I said this in the last episode, they were being judged for going out and having a good time at a rock and roll yeah. club and throwing a couple back. Yeah. If it happened at a country club, it'd be completely different. Um, you know, so Jeff has this chant of, you know, where's FEMA? Where's FEMA? And then he says, here's Laurenti. And I, I was like, God damn, I got nothing. But that day, Terry Glenn had been traded from the Patriots to the Cowboys and Doc was a big Cowboys fan. And that was the only way I could, I could work that in. But I wanted to say nothing. I just want you know, it's not about me. It's about Doc and the 99 other people. And as I said yesterday on Facebook, you know, on, on the 20th, I just said, you know, these people went to a rock show and they never got to go back home. And I, like I said earlier, I, I know that there are some people there. There was a woman that was working the T-shirt table. She got badly burned. And I'm pretty sure it was her. If not, it was a friend of hers that said, you know, I said, how do you feel about Great White? And they were like, oh, we sang it the other night at karaoke. People deal very differently. A couple of questions that are brewing in the back of my mind. When you were talking to National Press, what were they asking you? What did they want to know? Uh, Some of them wanted to know the layout of the club. Mm. Some of them wanted to know how we were dealing with it in the Mm -hmm. community level. Mm -hmm. Are you worried? There were a couple of people. Are you worried about being sued? And I'm like, that's going to be something down the road. That's not up for you to say, right? Of course not. And and of course, during that week leading up to that that tribute to the people that perished, I had to speak to people from the attorney general's office. I had to Mm -hmm. speak to the Warwick Fire Department, the state police, you know, all these entities of government. They were asking, you know, well, do you, you know, <laughs> Doc interviewed Jack Tuesday night. Pretty sure it was Tuesday night. Getting up to the Thursday night show. Yep. 
one of the questions that one of the people from I want to say the attorney general's office said, well, you know, do you have a, you know, do you have a tape of the interview? I'm like, yeah. no. And because back then, uh, for those of you listening back then, it was up to the discretion of the jock That's to right. record your show on a cassette or eventually CDs. Now, every time the mic is cracked, every break gets recorded mm-hmm. all digital because they're watching everything and they want to make sure you, you don't say the wrong thing. Oh, yeah. Going to make sure that you mention that. Las Vegas musical words every <laughs> yeah. five minutes. I said, that's up to the, the discretion of, of the jock. And it's like, well, we heard that, you know, Mr. Gonsalves, you know, asked Jack about pyrotechnics. Oh. And I said, no offense to Mike. Uh, I said, but when it came to interviews, he was he was not the Mike Wallace of interviews. And I said, he could care less if he was going to set off pyrotechnics. Yeah. And I said, I heard the interview. I don't recall pyrotechnics. I said, unless you're talking to Gene Simmons or Paul Stanley of Kiss or maybe Brian Johnson or Angus Young of ACDC. Yeah, mm-hmm. then I will ask about pyrotechnics. Not when you're playing a club. You know, that's not going to come up. Room. Yeah. I said, you know, I don't have any tape of it. Well, we heard. I'm like, well, you heard wrong. And the funny thing about that is I was still there. You know, Doc was filling in seven to midnight. So I'm listening to the interview and... He plays Rock Me by Great White, which is close to an eight-minute song. Hmm. Comes back, finishes up the interview. We'll see you Thursday night at the station. Gave away a pair of tickets, I think. He comes back to where I am, and he goes, oh, you're still here? And I said, yeah. He goes, you heard the interview? I said, yeah, it was pretty good. I, I, I said, uh, did you tape it? He goes, nah, it was live. I go, dude, you played an eight-minute song in between the interview. I go, what did you do? He goes, I put him on hold. He's Jack Russell. Where's he going to go? <laughs> you know, so that was our thinking. You're playing a nightclub and we love our music, but you're not playing the Civic Center. That's right. You know, and I just I, I just That's thought right. it was funny to put him on hold. But where's you know, where is he going to go? And the fact that, you know, unfortunately, he was the reason that Doc's not here and the 99 mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. are not here. And that's questions we were being asked, especially for Channel 5 or just, you know, how many people went club was overpacked. I said, I, I, I don't know, uh, based on... There's an ongoing discrepancy there. They'll say that it wasn't. Other people oh, say no, it, it was. was. It was. Uh, just from the people I know that were there, it was overpacked. I mean, it's, as the term goes, and please forgive me, but it was elbows to tits. I mean, that's... that's <laughs> you know. Elbows is the way I refer to it. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, it, it was overpacked because Jeff didn't want to charge a lot of money for those tickets. So I'm sure they sold as many as so they possibly let could. Me ask they you, got friends in. Let me ask you about that, because there's a lot about the Dadarians and how they are just the worst people on the face of the planet. And I understand why people are angry with the Dadarians, because there is a responsibility placed on them because they owned the building that burned. Exactly. You, I know you were friends. You say you were friends with Jeff. I, I'm not friends with Jeff. I don't know him, but I certainly knew I, him. He I was very visible personality on the news. What's your feeling about that? I haven't seen him in 18 years. The last time I think I spoke to him was Doc's wake. Mm. Uh, I shouldn't say it. No. The last, yeah, the last time I spoke to him was prior to Doc's wake. He called me and asked me if I was going. And I said, well, of course I'm going. And he said, can I come with you? And I said, I'm not bringing the devil to the dance. Sorry. That's right. I said, I, I said, I'm not going to wait in line with you either in front of me or behind me when I have to look at Mike's parents, you know, and his family. I said, you want to go? 
you go on your own because they were they went to they went to I think you or I together, you know. Mm -hmm. So I mean, they were classmates. That's that's how that friendship was with them. And I go, dude, sorry, can't do that. I, I, I'm I'm not I'm not gonna be that. I said, not only does it make me look bad, you want every eye? No, sorry, it just I wasn't wasn't gonna. Do that. I I didn't know Michael that well. I met him a few times, you know, mm -hmm. the nights I the nights I had been there, and they were look, they were always very nice to us. I mean, we helped them, they helped us. We did our best to, you know, promote shows. That's what we do. And like I said, they took care of us when we got there, you know, and just help them out when we can. And like I said, he would ask questions about, hey, band A is coming to town. They want X dollars. Well, I said, I don't think they're worth it. Or, you know, see if you can, you know, cut it down to maybe half. I mean, it sounds like that they were not equipped to be running the venue that they were running. No, he was. Uh, I've heard various rumors that he was across the street watching the building burn and not helping he was on the phone like just crying what am i going to do what am i going to do and you know i don't know who he was talking to yeah but, i i don't know if that's true i i don't i don't really know what is true because i've heard so many different stories i'm reading the book and this is based on 10 years of investigation i've had people say don't give the dedarians any time i think everybody is at fault i don't think one person is at fault i think there's a lot of but yeah, it was, it's placed. it's that you know I don't want to use the no, I will use the term it's a perfect storm where it you've is. got a you've got it a is. you've got a band you've got a club you've got violations numerous things but if you're at a club let's just say even though it says no pyrotechnics in the contract and they set them off because mm -hmm. they had done it at the Pony Room in New Jersey I think two nights earlier and yeah, they did it recently and they were like what did you do yeah and so be you know look if you're a club owner. You walk up to the road manager going, hey, hey, the contract said, I just feel bad for Dan Beakley because he was the guy that set it up, mm -hmm. but he didn't know the room and he should have known the room. I don't appreciate the fact that he did jail time because the ego of the lead singer demanded right. pyrotechnics and Jack needed to pay for that. And the uh, band manager also encouraged Dan Beakley to buy those. Like, we want to shake it up. We want to shake up the performance. Okay. D. Snyder hosted, I don't know if he still hosts the show, it's called House of Hair. Mm -hmm. So I would always make sure, you know, I would check and see what songs would mirror our playlist. And sure as shit, that Saturday night, Rock Me was on the playlist. And I get an email from the producer of House of Hair saying, hey, we just noticed that Great White's Rock Me is on, is on the show this week. I'm having D. We cut that segment and we'll play something else, but just for you. And I'm like, thank you very much. And I got it. I had it in less than 24 hours. The fact that D was able to do that and 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 want to do that shows me that he's a fan and he cares about people. T. Snyder's never come off to me as being a dick in any way. It was just one of those things. It's like he's probably got a million things going on right. on top of the radio, you know, because he but does to recognize that was important. Yeah. Exactly. You know? And so we appreciated that. And, and he was one of the artists that came to do the benefit concert a few years ago, mm -hmm. which was I didn't go to the show, but I thought it could have been better. Yeah. And it and it, it, yeah. it didn't do what it was supposed to do. There were like some some infighting, too. There's infighting Jeez. in different... Egos in rock and roll? What are you talking mm -hmm. about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> As I understand, it's, you know, some of the families of the survivors and the victims. And I think there's also some discord among people, mm -hmm. too. That's understandable. I'm sure that, yeah. you know, yeah. you've, you've got 100 people who died. Hundreds injured. 200, 200 plus that were burned mm -hmm. from minor to major. Mm -hmm. And, you know, have to live with those scars. I've heard so many stories over the years, but there was a woman that was a survivor, but I think a lot of her face had been uh, burned. Mm -hmm. And she was working at 
Toys R Us or Kmart, one of those stores. And she scared, she was in the toy department and she scared a little girl. You know, and I feel bad. And I know that she's had surgeries and a lot of the other people have had surgeries as well. Somebody, uh, oh, is our production director, was able to grab some of the breaks from that night that Doc did. Uh-huh. He was talking over Fade to Black. Uh-huh. And there's a video on YouTube. I just watched it last night. It's, it's, it's more audible than needing to see. Mm-hmm. But he did say, he started off by saying, I don't know, man. I don't know if Metallica is going to tour. You know, there's rumors they're going to tour this summer. But hey, who knows? Maybe I'm not even going to be here this summer or by then. Oh. He says this the night he dies. And that's heartbreaking. Doc just had his own unique way of being who he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he came off sometimes as a goofball, but he was he was funny, passionate about his sports. And that's how we got along, you know, having followed him for yeah almost like two years of doing 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Saturdays into Sundays. The metal, He was there live for the Metal Zone nine times out of ten. And I will say that because of him, he turned me on to more heavy metal bands that I would never because that just wasn't what I was into. I was punk, new wave, and and rock. You know, and Justice for All was the first record that, he, you know, him and the music director at the time said, gonna listen to this band. It's like, spend some time with it. And just listening to the Metal Zone, getting into Rhode Island, it was just, I'd, I'd hear some really great songs. And we'd, you know, we'd hang out for another hour, just, you know, shooting the shit. And we were young, and it sucks that, you know, he's not he's not here, they're not here. This should have never happened to these people. I'm so sorry that the, this had to happen to It could have happened in Cleveland. could have happened it, at CBGB's back in the day. It, for all it I could know. have <laughs> happened in a room that had sprinklers. And yes. people would have walked out. Well, that's people would have walked out of that room if that room had sprinklers in it, like it really should have. Somebody had said that the, that building was grandfathered in and they it didn't was. Need, that they didn't need sprinklers. I'm like, how do you not need sprinklers? Well, that unfortunately is a... Rhode Island thing. I, I don't think right. it was just Rhode Island, but unfortunately no. it was grandfathered in. And I really hope that that has changed for every single room in the United States of America. I don't know about every single room, but I, in Rhode Island, I did see a lot of changes. Um, you know, the thing is, is the most haunting thing in, is that when there is a fire drop to the floor, because when you see that video of that back door, like where the smoke is just, you've got maybe five inches of air. That's the one thing that stuck with me in that video. I I mean, when you see that video of the fire starting and you realize that most of the people that are in that video didn't make it out. Not getting out. I relive it all. I I relive it every year. I mean, it's that's why it's so. I know you do. I know you do. You you definitely are one of those people who keeps it top of mind, even 18 years later, that these people died. We cannot forget that. We cannot forget what these people went through. If the camera crew wasn't there. We wouldn't have seen the horror. No. Again, and it was a fluke that that camera guy was there in the first was, place. And it was pre-cell phones with cameras. That's right. You know, so, I mean, nowadays, you, you, everybody would have been doing it. It was just dumb luck. The fact that, you know, Jeff was going to do this story on insulation and whatever. And it was just it like B-roll, just yeah. going to take some shots, some some benign shots of the room. And then look what happened. Uh, a matter of fact, I think it's my intern. She said that she got somehow the entire raw footage, the wow. stuff that you, the stuff that you didn't see on well, TV. Wow. I don't want to see that. I just want to know what happened to my friend. 
we're, and we're told, I know Governor Kachiri said this to a lot of the families when, when he, he came back from his vacation. He was meeting with everybody mm-hmm. in the hotel that was close by, and, and everybody was very concerned. And, and what he was told, and as he understood it, was they were asphyxiated. It was so thick, mm. and that was the foam. Toxic. Yeah, so it was very toxic. You know, Jeff and Mike really wanted to do a lot with the club and, and, and getting bands like that. There had been talk of, you know, Quiet Riot and, you know, a handful of other hair bands that were trying to relive their past that for all the Motley Crews and Poisons of the world, there were a ton of hair bands. Um, Who would have worked really well in a room like that. Sure. We see bills like that at the Casino Ballroom in Hampton Beach. Works mm-hmm. great. Yep. Uh, you know, so it, it's it changed the dynamic of of everything that we know i mean from yeah. a club thing and and those as you know a lot of the bar gigs dried up anyway yeah as time progressed yeah. um before this pandemic so you know it, it just it was the perfect storm of a beer promotion because it was a budweiser born on date thing so the beer had come down from new hampshire that day mm-hmm. so you're dealing with budweiser you're dealing with a radio station mm-hmm. you're dealing with us doing a promo with budweiser mm-hmm. we are dealing with a client the station mm-hmm. nightclub that's right we're dealing with the salesman slash dj that's going to MC the show and then the fire happens mm-hmm. you know i didn't know that you could sue home depot for the for the foam i didn't know that you know you could sue the company that made the foam i don't know how jack russell can put his head on a pillow every night and and not hear those screams and not that's what bothers me the most. I mean, I know somebody has to pay. And I know that the tour manager, Dan Beakley, went to jail. And, and he manned up, so to speak, for lack of a better term, and said, yep, I'm guilty. I lit the I lit the match. You know, yeah. I flicked the switch. It was me. He and, pulled the trigger, but... And the owners, they're culpable. The band is culpable. I believe, I will forever believe that Jack Russell has responsibility here. And he got off... His insurance company paid a million dollars and he walked away. And they're still playing. He's still playing. And I I remember that, you know, again, the community of radio, you know, HJY and AAF, really not bitter rivals. I mean, we overlapped. Mm -hmm. Mistress Carrie had called me because, you know, we were were friendly. And she had called me to say that Great White was going to be playing someplace in New England. And she's like, we have to put a stop to this. It was like, uh, let's see. They did a show in Maine. Yeah, but they were supposed to do one either in New Hampshire or maybe somewhere in Massachusetts. I forget where. Mm-hmm. But she had said we like could... Like right the, after the station? Like in the, um, in the years no, it after? Was, yeah, well, I left in September of 05, so it was between... Yeah, it was between 03 and 05. Okay. And she was like, we have to stop this. And we did. Yeah. She got the word out and we, we supported it. And, and that's, you know, how dare you come back where you effed it, everything up? They're not, they're not welcome here. I'm speaking for me. I mean, I know that there's still people that were involved in the station nightclub fire that still love them. And, and you know, that's that's theirs. I don't want to hear them. I don't want to see them. It's a, you know, look, it's a genre of music that was pigeonholed. You know, mm-hmm. if, it, if, it, if it wasn't for MTV, you know, a lot of those bands probably wouldn't have had the success that they did. Mm-hmm. In a way that I look at, you know, the way I was treated, not, not treated in high school, but I wasn't listening to Rush and Ozzy. I was listening to Devo and the Cars and the mm-hmm. Police, you know, uh, whereas New Wave and Punk was looked upon the same way as hair bands were. But hair bands were the black T-shirt crowd. 
it could have been any one of the that's the that's the irony it could have been any one of them never mind us the fact that pyro you know it, it, this fire changed a lot of ways that things are done in clubs are they still going to get packed in sure you know are people going to pull fire alarms sure uh, I just remember that we, uh, uh, one of the nights at the Rumble, mm-hmm. at once, mm-hmm. the fire alarm went off. That's right. And the first thing I did was, you know, I'm smelling, I'm smelling, I'm trying to smell smoke. Everyone luckily went out and didn't freak out, but, you know, it, it made me think. Again, it just, any any room that's been redone or re- reconfigured to be a club, like in the station situation where it was a restaurant, you know, do you think about the wood being saturated with grease and oil over 30 years? No. You know, there's a lot of things that, you know, should be done. I know that when a new club is built, get the name of the club, but there was a new club that had opened in Providence about a year after the nightclub fire. And they had exit signs on the floor. Well, and that's a really great point. I actually exactly. spoke to someone who got out, Tom Stewart, and he said one of the things that I suggested when anybody asked me, if anybody asked me what could have helped, exit signs on the bottom. Yeah, because just, when just when, above the baseboard, when up here is filled with black smoke, you cannot yep. see a, an exit sign up here. Yes. Um, so that it, it, I got a tour of the club before it opened. I was doing an event there, and it was they had spent so much money, but it was the first. I think it was the first new club in Providence that had to be reconfigured. Mm-hmm. And he said we spent so much money, but I was like, wow exit signs on the on the floor like just yeah. enough that if you got on your belly you'd be able to see it so it was like right above right right around near the outlets around mm-hmm. that area and mm-hmm. sprinkler systems sure yeah. fire extinguishers mm-hmm. sure staff that is trained to help people exit mm-hmm. be able to corral people out the ways they need to go i don't know if that happened at the station do you do you know no. if there was any security there well, uh, they help security, corral people outdoors. I don't. I don't know. Security that help people? No, not that I know of. And like I said, that bouncer on the side of the stage is just you know. I I, I don't know how he. I don't even know if he survived or not. There was reportedly a West Warwick police officer on detail that night at the station. I believe that because of well, it was the Winger show. I think that I went to with Kenny Young. That parking lot was very tiny. Like you had to park on the side street up the street. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I had to do that countless times. So and that then especially parking... if it snowed. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and, a, and a lot of the Nate, look, the reason the foam is the, the insulation was there is because neighbors were complaining about the noise. That's right. You know, it's in a residential neighborhood. And strangely, the person who sold the Dedarians, the foam that they bought lived in the neighborhood. Yeah. It was one of the people who would complain about the noise. Mm-hmm. Talk about a mind fuck, John. Right. <laughs> he probably liked the club. He probably enjoyed the bands that played there, but yeah. He probably had kids and Made noise. Made noise. You know, and and you're dealing with you're dealing with people in parking lots, you yeah. know, smoking cigarettes, smoking joints. Hanging out at the drinking at, beers in the middle of the night. I we've all done it. We've all been yeah. there. You yeah. and me have done it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I get it. Like I, I wouldn't want a club in my backyard. I get no. it. You know, because it was. It was a family restaurant. It's no one like wants to live near it. No. And it's like your local pizza place became a nightclub type thing. I'm filling in now. I I work for Cumulus and Westwood One. They're the same company. Mm -hmm. And I do part-time work for Light 105. And I was filling in on the morning show. And last spring was the first time I had been back to the station since the nightclub fire. 
Wow. Like, I, I never, I never drove by. I, you know, uh, I, I've never, I never drove by when the shell was still, the, the building was still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never went back to pay my respects when it was an empty lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I had some time and I was like, you know what? Today's the day. And yeah. I, and I went and I thought, I, I think that the tribute is, is beautiful. You know, these people had lives they you know they they meant something to their families their That's loved right. ones and right. you know you read little things about them and mm-hmm. um you know i didn't like i said i didn't even go there when the makeshift crosses were there i, I don't know what it was I, I i you know was it me trying to repress it because you know i don't have survivor's remorse because i wasn't there but when i look at the fact that if doc didn't do that show it's me and it's not a, it's not about me, but it's the fact of I would have been the one on stage that night had he not asked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've all done hundreds of the hundreds of those shows. I've been in a lot of those where you're throwing T-shirts off the stage mm-hmm. and, yeah. you know, you can't really if it's crowded, you can't really get to the back of the room very quickly. No, you can't. And especially, you know, if you're walking right off the stage and you're in the club, you know, people want to know. Like I, that was one of the things that I appreciated about working in Rhode Island and living in Massachusetts. I love what I do. I love music. Mm-hmm. I love being able to do this with people like you and just talk. But I'm not about, hey, look at me. I'm on the radio. Right. Uh, you know, right. I, I I do a job. It's like, do you treat a mechanic the same way? Because he can fix a car, but I can't. <laughs> you know, I mean, no, like doctors should be held in that regard. You know, yeah. you save lives. I just yeah. give you a T-shirt. We have a cool job. We get to, you know, we get to meet people. We get to, mm-hmm. you know, you, you go through the people you've met in your life and you go, wow, I had some of those guys and, and women hanging on my wall and I got right. to drink with them. Amazing you know, opportunities that we have had. That's one of the things about being an HDY is everybody there, there weren't, I didn't encounter a lot of egos. I didn't, you know, we, we were a family. Sure. We, you know, we weren't in a huge market but when i think back to when i was there and just to show you how the business itself has changed when i started in 1987 at hjy we were market 24 as of right now i think they're bubbling between 45 and 50 Mm -hmm. that just shows you the rest of the country has grown there are other markets that were way lower that are now in the top 10 that weren't even there 20 years ago Mm -hmm. you know it depends where the people are going so it was you know like i said it was great to be able to work there and then come home because I didn't have to be on, you know, yep. and, and um, but, you know, I always try to talk to the, the listeners, you know, because like I said, they, they, uh, at the time they looked at us, I hate to say celebrity, but I mean, that's. No, I understand what you're saying. And, and I definitely have always felt that being on the radio, you know, when you're live on the radio, it's, it's a, it's own kind of performance. Sure. You know, and that's, and that's one of the things that was like, uh, <laughs> Marty Farrell, who was our promotions assistant uh, at one point, or promotions director, no promotions assistant. Uh, we all love Doc and his style. He had a unique style. Mm-hmm. Marty said we were. I just uh, we were having lunch and we were just talking about Doc. And he goes, "Yeah." He goes, "I just think that you know Doc has words swirling around his head and he just grabs what comes at him." <laughs> and and you know when you do what we do. It changes every day. That's what, one of the things I like about radio. Every day is different. You know, you're not sitting at the same, you know, you're sitting, you're not sitting at the same desk going over the same report every day. Yeah. Yeah. And we're all unique in our own little styles and ways. Like there are things that I do that I 
don't realize I do until I hear it on tape or whatever. But you know, it it, it was it was weird. And there are still people I talk to that you know, and I have no problem talking about the nightclub fire. I, I don't because uh, you're right. I don't want those hundred people to be forgotten. I just think what it, what happens is it just becomes sort of like this folklore thing about oh, like once upon a time these people existed. No, no, no. These these people had real lives and they had children and they had aspirations. You know that that's the stuff that bums me out. Yeah, and the and, jokes, and, the jokes that people made about that. I'll never forgive those people for that. You, but you're always going to have that. Of course. Know? And it's, of course. I mean, it's worse now because of social media. I mean, I hate mm-hmm. to, you know, mm-hmm. I'm all about technology and I'm all about moving forward, mm-hmm. but it's easier to say something on Facebook than you would to the face of somebody. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, you know, radio is the only business. I always, I always use this joke when I, when I first started, There's, you're always going to get this phone call, you know, especially when you're doing 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Or, or 10 a or 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Hi, HJY. You suck and hang up. I'm like, do you call Domino's and say you suck? I mean, that's, you know, it's just, it's the only business where that happens. You want to make people, like, you want to make people happy. If you mm-hmm. call in and you want to hear a song and we can play it for you. Yeah. I we're love your, that. We're your hero. That. You know, we, we, yeah. you put a smile on there. My job, you know, the way I look at it is inform, entertain, and if I'm lucky, you learn something too. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that goes into every show that anyone does, Mm -hmm. whether you're doing mornings, middays, it's just, it's different now. Way different. It's way different. It's way different. You know, and that's, you know, that's one of the things of, you know, with doc being recorded, you know, it's like what would have happened had he been there and we, you know, I still had to pretend like we were live but I was on the air live, but it's, you know, again, what, what if I had gone home Angel? what if I wasn't there? What if Jim Stearns had shut down the station at 10 30 or 11 o'clock, the radio station, you know, and let the voice tracks go. Yeah. That would have been horrendous. You you know? So it's like, you know, was there a reason that he and I were still there? Mm. Maybe it's, it's, it's just dumb luck uh, in that regard. That was one of the things that Joe Bevelock, when I talked about, it was just, he and I, uh, he had taken me out for a drink probably a week after everything had kind of died down. And he just wanted to thank me for, you know, doing what I did and, you know, thanking me for being there. And I, and that's where that whole conversation, I said, what if, what if I wasn't there, Joe? It's like you, you jumped into crisis mode. It's, it's a lot like similar to what we did on nine eleven. Yeah, pretty much. You know, similar. And it, fe- it felt similar. It was, it was nine eleven was the first time that you know any time like that like even though we're not in the news business not that i wanted anything catastrophic to happen like that while i'm on the air but when i was in radio school we had a radio station at northeast broadcasting that just was in the building and i was on the air because you had to do a shift it was like an hour and i was at school the day the challenger blew up and our oh, teacher shit. taught us right then and there crisis mode. Mm-hmm. We had AP, we had to get AP, we had to report the news, we, we did have a television, you know, it wasn't a great television, but it was there and we're trying, and it was to report it. So, yeah, when 9 11 happened, I had never been more prepared in my life. 
Mm. I, um, one of the girls I worked with at HJY, she was a promotions assistant. Her husband had just started flying for American Airlines out of Boston. Ooh. And I did what people did when, well, when people called my house and Sandra was like, he's home. He answered the phone. Mm. And I was like, thank God. He goes, all right. He goes, you're like the 18th person that's called. I said, dude. But he gave me every rundown of what happens in that situation when there are people in the cockpit. Mm. And I had, I, the American Airlines wouldn't let him come on the air with us, but he gave me everything off the record. Uh, wow. But I, I had the complete rundown of what a pilot is trained to do in that situation. And what are they trying to do? There's a certain, they call it a yoke. And there was a button that has to be pushed. And Uh he heard that the button had never been pushed and that the pilots were dead before that plane hit the building. Wow. So everyone, everyone in the cockpit was gone. So, you know, so that's one of those, that's, you know, that, that was one of those things. And, you know, I'm chomping at the bit and we just kept running the same crap over and over at that point, you know, by the time I'm on the air at three o'clock in the afternoon, everything had been rehashed. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we took phone calls. We wanted, you know, uh, my partner, Jeff Charles, was former military. He had no filter and just let it go. And, you know, did we make friends? Yeah. Do we make enemies? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was funny. Our, uh, we had let a, a fuck and a shit go out over the air. <laughs> and my program, Joe Bevilacqua, came in and, you know, he's like, you know, you can't let that. This was and this was all pre-delay like we weren't taping phone calls we were just going live on the air with them like we were a talk show wow and all all jeff said was two buildings came down today due to a terrorist attack do you think the fcc gives a good goddamn about whether we let two bad words out over the air on today like they're gonna be paying attention (laughs) not a chance you know and i think the statute of limitations is over on that but uh you know it, it was that was when tvs entered the studio that's, that's right. when you that's when you were able to because they didn't want us to have TVs because right. you're not being paid to watch TV. At FNX, they brought in this little tiny black yeah. and white thing that we could barely see what was going on. I didn't I didn't see the images of 9-11 until that night. I really wow. didn't see any images until that night. And I was devastated. Well, that's, I mean, it was hor- it was just so horrible and traumatic. And we didn't know what we were doing. We couldn't get anybody on the phone. And we're just talking and just when I went on I was doing middays when I went on I just played music it was just making sure I wasn't you know when the the list of songs not to play went out remember that I was being Uh, really careful not to well yeah well you worked for the company that put it out right Mm -hmm. we were just being really mindful about stuff read that on the air read the list of songs we couldn't play when we went to war Mm -hmm. and uh, read the list of songs we had to change after Nipplegate so, uh, right. uh, but nine eleven was yeah it was one of those things, and I just remember I was still able to actually nine it was nine eleven was the first day of my kids going to preschool. Wow! <laughs> uh, and I just remember the, I just remember the sky being beautiful, beautiful blue sky and everything yeah. else. But I was listening to Howard Stern. I woke up listening to Howard Stern. That's how I heard it. I was and driving. all all I heard was oh my god another plane's hit the building. I'm like you can't say that. And then I turned on the Today Show, and by the time I got there, there was footage of the second plane hitting the building. And I was like, oh, God, this is real. I, I told the story at, um, I did an event with a bunch of radio people. It was me, Billy Costa, Charles Laquadera, and Henry Santoro, and oh my, uh, she worked at FNX with you, uh, uh, the photographer. Oh, Julie Kramer? Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. I didn't know she worked at HJY. Oh, I didn't either. She had done a, uh, she had done a stint. I, I think it was before I got there. And, you know, 
I'm not talking out of school. I mean, people realize that Ryan Seacrest is not here in Boston saying Kiss 108. Right. But I said, when automation came in, HJY would be dark from 7 p.m. Friday night till 5.30 a.m. Monday morning. Mm -hmm. Unless somebody went in to, you know, cut their show or whatever. But that, Mm -hmm. you know, it was running on automation. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's how a lot of it's done now. But Doc hadn't been live at that point maybe two or three years that's incredible to me because it didn't it didn't hit my world of radio until iheart took over in 2017 yeah well zlx was never on unmanned yeah right well it was part of it from what i was told was see in um there's a, a former boss of mine uh has done programming in new york and he's in philly now he's working with jackson actually paul jackson uh mm-hmm. bill yeah. bill weston bill weston MMR. is his program yeah. yeah bill weston's his program director um because both new york and philly are union cities there has to be someone live in the studio huh. overnights i don't know if that's changed but he said that when he was in new york and Makes philly sense. uh you had to do it and you know of course there's two very big cities uh but Again, the dynamic of the world has changed. I don't know if things would have been different had, like I said, if Doc had to be on the air live that night. Mm-hmm. You know, do the show, get out the door, and get to the radio station. That's not what would have happened. And like I said, there's not a day that goes by that I don't I don't think about him. And and you know, anytime I hear Metallica, I automatically think of him. And the people that had rolled through the station, you know, it's like. Um, Lemmy got mad at us because we played the Ace of Spades instead of the new song. <laughs> well, that's their jumping jack flash. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but Doc, had, you know, hosted the Metal Zone for so long that, you know, when those guys came in to be on, you know, the afternoon show with me and Jeff, um, he would come in to do interviews with them for the Metal Zone because it was mm-hmm. a big deal to talk to Dave Mustaine and talk mm-hmm. to, to Lemmy and, yeah. and, and Lars when they would be in there um, and countless other people. You know, and um, it was just like, you know, I just Lemmy was like, you know, play the new song. It's like, well, I don't have the record. It's locked up in the the metal guy's closet. And who's in the studio with us but the metal guy. And I I saw him, you know, make a movement. I was like, mm, no, because <laughs> the program director didn't want to play the new Motorhead for whatever reason. Wow. Um, but, you know, there's just there's there. There was a lot of good times. I don't think I ever. I don't think I ever had a bad time with him in or out of the studio ever, you know, minus, you know, there were some bumps in the road when I first took over as music director and just trying to learn the system. Uh, But either than that, you know, we had a a really good relationship and, you know, we'd make, we'd make bets on football games and whatnot. And he was a huge like card collector. He owned, owned, I think he was part owner of a card shop Mm -hmm. in, uh, in Rhode Island, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and so, there was a time when those things came back and it really was, you know, he didn't, he lived and breathed metal, but he was, you know, just a regular everyday guy. And, you know, we all gave him crap the day he cut his hair because it was exactly the same week that Metallica had cut their hair. Oh, friends and, don't let friends get friends hair cut. <laughs> and he was like, I swear to God, I didn't know they got their hair cut. <laughs> like, well, they did. That was a big story. <laughs> it was yeah, huge. That was a big story. Because it was like it was like a whole new metal, right? And that's you know again that's the thing of these any any musician gets lucky, 
they work hard for it. You know, I mean, um, I'm, I, 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 we're getting ready for season two of a podcast called Boston Venue, the channel that I narrate. And I still have connections with people in Metallica's management. And it was just the wrong time to ask to get an interview with Lars. It was right after James went back in to rehab this, this past year. Mm-hmm. So they didn't want to, they didn't want him, but they played the channel. You know, the channel is one of those places that, yes, it was bigger. It held 1,200 people, but the channel stage was pretty much the same size as the one at the station, yeah. give or take, you know, a few feet. I was at shows at the channel where, you know, it was packed. You know, how many times have you been at the Paradise? Tons. Yeah. You know, I mean, you Tons. look at, you know, you look at a club like that, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 it does uh, whoever owned, I don't know if Don Law owned it originally, but, you know, would they allow pyro to go there? You know, that that's one of those things you think about. And like they said, that pyro is a once it's like, it's just for the opener. It's just for the opening song and that's it. And we're done. I, we're not going to do it anymore. Though, I believe that they didn't, they didn't allow it. I, I believe that they, they were like, no, it wasn't, no, it, you it, can't do it. And they it just did it anyway. It was vain. Yeah, it, it wasn't in the contract. Like I said, it happened in Jersey the night or two nights prior. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm like I said, I'm just sure the bar manager, you know, the owner of the club is like, Hey, Hey, you said no. And then, just yeah, you're right. But it was ego. That's what that is. That's that's what kills me, Angel. There's a story in the book about a guy who was just a just a fan who would go. They didn't schedule him. He wasn't the lighting guy, but he would come in and play with the lights at the station. Okay. And he testified during the grand jury trial that um, Beakley had said to him, "Hey, at the start, can you just put all the lights down? Because we got a thing. Yeah, we got a thing." Ah, mm-hmm. uh, and they're like. Did you know what they were going to do? It's like, well, he just said, you know, sparklers or something or, or, wow, you know, he said something, but this guy didn't work for the club, but the press made it out to be that the guy worked for the club, that he was the lighting director of the club, that he was aware of the facts. Like, no, no, everything got totally twisted out of context. I want to say that the Darians were not making a boatload of money in that club. No, they they had sold it. Oh, that's right. They were like days or weeks away from being mm. out from under the burden of the station. That's right. Forgot about that. Yeah. If I owned a, I'm sure it's different now, but if I had a club and my friend wanted to work the lights, go ahead, you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, they were, you know, they were struggling. They, I, that I do know. I mean, they weren't making money. The, mm-hmm. the fact, like I said, I, I go see Mick Taylor and there's only 20 people there. I mean, he's devastated. I mean, it's, to me, it's the Mick Taylor era of the stones is my favorite era and that's why i went yeah it's i felt bad for him but i you know i got to talk to him after the show type of thing because there was nobody there but it's got to be devastating for for the artists like that but you know again there were all like there's a reason the house of hair did well there were a lot of bands hjy played like i said earlier that that only aaf and CGY and HJY and maybe HEB or GIR in New Hampshire. Yeah, played. yeah, because I remember. I mean, I grew up in Southern New Hampshire when I was in high school, and I remember it. That's how I heard all that stuff. That's how I yeah. heard Motley Crue and Poison and Skid Row and all that shit that I loved when I was a kid. Sure, and you know, I always remember the radio war between you know WLYN, which eventually became FNX, between mm-hmm. between BCN and and, L, and LYN. But I heard songs first on LYN before I heard him on BCN because Mm -hmm. it was kind of like the testing ground. Once that band took off, the claws went in. It's like, they're ours now. That's Ah, right. That's right. And, you know, that was kind of, you know, HJY and I'm not, you know, tooting my horn or the, or the station's horn, but when you added a record at HJY 
because we were in a top 30 market, if you added a song, nine times out of 10 markets, 30 and below, you'd get 10 to 15 stations pick up a record. That's how influential they were. So it was a big deal. And we did get to talk to a lot of people. I mean, I, there were things I forget we talked about or a perfect example. David Lee Roth could have been the guy playing the station when he was doing his solo career. He played you know, drums like that for a while. Yeah. You know, so and luckily he didn't use pyro. But I mean, it's it could have been anybody that we have looked up to. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I look up to Jack Russell. I'm just using it as an example. of. It a, could have been someone know, we liked, John. Yeah, it could have been. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, and I remember prior to the fire, uh, Great White had done a show at the Tweeter Center. And opening I, for someone or yes, their own opening for somebody. Oh no, they were opening for somebody. They never headline big venues like that. No. And Oh, I think it was great white and poison hmm. because, or it was great white poison. And then another band it was like a good hair band. Show. I saw white snake and great white at the Manchester. Remember uh, when me, they had concerts me. on the river in Manchester, New Hampshire. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, Oddly enough, and I just remembered this, um, there was a crush of the audience, and I don't think it was for Great White. It was definitely for White Snake. But the audience all crushed forward, and I mm-hmm. was in that. Oh boy! And uh, I got pulled out. I remember getting pulled out, and I wow. you know, was walking around backstage wow. around to meet my friends. But that happened to be Great White on the bill, so they're kind of bad luck. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't, I, I just, I forget. I just remember that it was after Great White had played i don't know why they had just done an album of covers mm. and i forget if i was there with doc or not i just know that i was backstage and hanging out with jack and cc deville <laughs> there's a pair oh yeah um you know and i i like the conversation but i i'm not living with these guys i don't know what i mean have i seen egos up front close and personal of major acts major rock stars major musicians yeah we all have. Everyone has a bad day. I get that. Uh, but when you see and hear certain things mm-hmm. and then you realize that, yeah, Great White never headlined a show. They were always the middler or the opener. You're playing. You're, I, you know, look, the station was a dive bar. Let's just, you know, call it yeah, what it is. It was. It was. Um, it was. It's ego. That's what that, that was. That was ego. Right. It was, well, that has been. He was a hack. That's why this you know, documentary I'm working on or I was interviewed for. Um, they, um, Jack said that the documentary was about him. It's not. He's so, fu- so right. He's looking, he's looking to get back. He's like, Hey, look, yes. they're doing a documentary on me so I can go back me. out on the road. Um, this book that I'm reading and I understand, again, I've said this all along. I understand there's people that are like, I don't want any part of that. That's garbage. And that's totally understand that the writer, Scott James, who, who's from, Massachusetts worked in in Providence in in TV news for a long time. He said he asked Jack Russell for an interview and Jack Russell agreed to do an interview for the book, but then said, you have to pay me. And he says, Oh, I don't, I don't pay for interviews. And he (laughs) said, well, I'm not, but I'm not doing an interview. (laughs) So that's Jack Russell. Yeah. That's a, that's a guy that, you know, is um, trying to rub two nickels together. He was flipping his hair. There's also a part in the book that Linda Dadarian is somehow manages to stand next to Jack Russell sometime during the night of the fire and she sees him flipping his hair in the parking lot. <laughs> now people handle trauma differently and I understand people go into shock and they behave sure. strangely and I get all that but then he was also um, promoting a summer tour 
when right. the building is burning down. He's talking mm. to people and he's promoting the fact that they're going on tour. By the way, and they couldn't find their guitar player because it right. turned out he died in the fire. To go back and get a guitar that he was. Look, I don't I don't disparage any musician to go mm -mm. back and get, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, it was one guitar or maybe two guitars, mm -hmm. but I know it was a guitar that he that meant something to him. And that's what musicians do. I right. get that. I hadn't heard that story, but the fact that he claims he wanted to help, but he was told not to. Anybody can say that. He knew that he was in a boatload of crap at that point. He knew he was in trouble and he knew that he had to shut up. He knew that his lawyers, whoever his his attorneys were that jumped on board, said, don't say anything. Somebody said that they tried to get on the bus or they did get on the bus and the bus tried to leave. I don't know how true that is, mm. but I wouldn't be surprised. They didn't have their guitar player and they were yeah. going to leave. They knew they were fucked. That's why. Pretty much. You know, I don't know what any of the guys in the band are doing now. I, I don't know if it's a, if it's a new group of, of guys. It was Jack Russell. And I think everybody else that was playing and, that night was for hire, right? It was like hi, Jack yeah. Russell's great white by then. Hired, hired guns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've never seen. I know that he did apologize, but I just know he's never formally apologized. Mm -hmm. And that's what upsets me. We had the forum and, and we weren't going to reach out to Jack Russell and say, hey, we got a story. Come on and, and, and apologize. Right. We weren't going to do that. He didn't have the right handlers. He didn't have a record label behind him where they could say, hey, look, you've got to get on. You could have gone on on, on FNX. You could have gone on AAF. You didn't have to go to HJY where right. we lost a guy because of you. Yeah, you could have come in that building and yeah, we would have hated you. But if you wanted to apologize to Rhode Island and the families and the people that survived, I'm not saying it would have patched things over, but it would have helped your cause just a little bit. It would have helped people heal a little bit more, too, to... You know, people want compassion. This this happens to a lot of people. They they mm -hmm. want a little empathy. They want a little compassion. They want a little, you know, contrition. Like I I I'm really sorry that this happened during my show and these people were fans and they came to see me and this is what happened to them. I'm really sorry that happened. It just, you know, he's someone who again, I haven't seen or spoken to him since the fire and I don't care to. <laughs> I don't honestly uh, know if he's still touring or anything. No, he I think he is. Yeah, I think he's I think he's I think he's done some, you know, I want to say maybe one of those biker things. Pretty sure he's traveled that like circuit of mm -hmm. carnivals and, and fairs and whatnot. Yeah, you don't want I, I just don't know how, like I said, I just don't know how you can sleep at night knowing that you never formally apologize. And you've got a hundred ghosts, including your guitarist hanging over your head. Ty Longley was expecting a baby. Yeah. Like he died and he didn't even get to meet his kid. Right. It's terrible. You know, and and the guy Donovan that I told you about, I think he got divorced while he was in a coma. <sighs> I think either that or the papers were served while he was in a coma. I mean, Jeez. I you know, I just know Donovan had come in and we'd had him, Gina, and a few other people. And, you know, when they were trying to raise money and we would do everything we could to help them. Like we even though we weren't responsible for it, it affected us. And so right. what do you do? You take the biggest platform. You do what you can. And they would come on and, and they would, you know, and, and we would, you know, we would talk to them. I, I remember talking to Donovan. It was probably a year after. And he's got a really good sense of humor. He's not, I don't know if he's mad at Jack, but I mean, he wears shorts all the time now because he's hot. So I don't know if it's changed. But I mean, I, I've been out of HJY now for 16 years, but I ran into him at the parking lot of the Tweeter Center. Uh, I was doing a ZLX thing and I 
happened to see him and I talked to him and I asked how he was doing. And I said, uh, good, you know, it's the summertime. So I said, you're still wearing shorts. And I said, are you still using the AC in the wintertime? He goes, yeah. Like that's something you don't think about. Just the fact- his body is just consumed by that now again maybe some of those scars have healed by now Mm -hmm. but this was you know when i when i talked to him it was like i said within a year or two of after the fire happening and he goes yeah i have i have the ac on during the winter wow i'm sure he's not the only one i can't imagine what people deal with what their subconscious holds for them you know and i i don't know the fact that post-traumatic stress disorder you know Mm -hmm. i don't i don't hear a lot about that from the survivors but then again i i I haven't been in that market for a while yeah you think about that how did they deal with it did they turn to drugs did they turn to booze did they there there are some casualties as a result yeah and you know february is definitely a really hard time for people that were that were part of this um i spoke to that person tom i told you about and Mm -hmm. he said you know, even though I got out and I was at the back of the room and I, you know, I didn't have to fight so hard, you know, certainly you have to, he sure. really had to find his way. But um, he says, yeah, when February comes and I start to feel a little bit down and then I have to make the connection like, oh, it's February. We're getting closer to the anniversary. It's affecting me. Oh, I'm, I'm realizing why I'm feeling like this. Yeah. And not that it would be torture. And I don't know if Jack has seen the full footage of the nightclub fire i think he should watch it i think he should should know i'm sure he's seen some of these people since then Mm -hmm. you know the fans that are that are still into into uh, great white and and that's fine you you're into if that's your thing Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna knock you for it that's if you if you enjoy their music that's fine uh but i don't know if he saw people putting themselves out in snowbanks don't know did he i'm sure he heard heard the screams that's yeah. the one thing oh, that's yeah. the one thing that haunts well not haunts me but when I see that footage and I and I hear the screams and just the fire alarms going off I just don't know what it was like to be there and I don't ever want to know. No. But having, you know, spoken to so many survivors and, and other things but it's the fact of when you just hear the silence and it's just the fire alarms you hear the screams and then you don't hear the screams. You know that they do you know the story about the guy that they pulled out there was a guy that was in the pile of people in the doorway, uh, and when they y- when they were rescuing um, people, they or or trying to see if anybody survived when they were pulling the people out of the pile yep. at the door. Those are the people he, that survived. Yeah, he he grabbed this this man. His name is Mike. Uh, his real name is Raul, but he goes by Mike. Um, he grabs the firefighter's leg, and the firefighter, of course, is freaked out by it. Um, but he yeah. somehow survived in that pile of people. And he heard the screaming, and then he heard the screaming stop. It was him, and there was somebody else who told me, yeah, that it, that they were they were buried under people, but because they it was like he they just he, he or she just had enough where they could breathe. They had just he had just enough air. The way he was laying on his side, right. he was sort of yep. in his, the fetal position, he had like a mm-hmm. little air pocket there. You know, it just wasn't his time. Yeah, you think that, you know, I do believe in in karma. Mm-hmm. ironically enough but mm-hmm. um my my uh my partner jeff charles always said you know you're, if it's your time it's your time i go yeah but what if i'm on an airplane and the plane crashes and it's the guys next to me time he goes no that whole plane it was your time oh. and those are the conversations i had with him both on and off the air but i, I just was like you know jeff they just went to a show yeah they just, they were went just to hanging a show. out they were just having a good time letting up letting off some steam you know you know and, thursday and night they got their paycheck eggs. It's it was Friday night light, as he That's used to it. say. It was a big storm. People were housebound. Let's go out. Imagine 
thankfully everything's better now, but when this pandemic is over, you know, I don't think we'll ever have a packed, it'd be great to be back in a a packed venue to see a show. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is, this is the longest I've ever not been at a show. I mean, over a year. Yeah. It's been a year um, this month. Yeah. I think the last show I went to was like on the, on the last day of February. Wow. And then uh, I had a show, I had a couple of events planned for March that I canceled. We can't get together. (laughs) people do miss it, you know, and it's like, that's this upcoming generation is not going to know what it's like to be in a packed club. And in some ways it's good. In some ways it's bad. You know, I, I just, I, I just remembering the video and I don't know if Jack was outside or if he was on his bus with his head under a pillow and not hearing anything. I mean, those are the sounds like that's what I've been told. And I know that the book that you're reading is to be more definitive of the than the other books that have been written, mm-hmm. uh, because it was done by someone who reports the news. This is based on a lot of um, the grand jury testimony that was unsealed that nobody and, could get. And that's the other thing. I didn't. I didn't realize this. This documentary that uh, I don't. I don't even. I forget the name of it, but it, it should be out in the next couple of years. They wanted Steve Scarpetti. That's how I got involved with it because I don't work for HJY anymore. The company even though he spoke to the grand jury and they will use some of his testimony, the company wouldn't let him be in the documentary. Is that right? Because he still works for the company. Exactly. Huh. I found out, I ran into my intern because she lives in the area and I see her every once in a while. Um, She spoke at the grand jury and I didn't know that. Mm. And she said that she was on the stand just bawling her eyes out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I'm going to reach out to the director and, and see if you can, at least you can give an account you know, and she wasn't even working that night, but she was hanging out with, you know, that's like I said, that's what they did. It was the, the that, hangout, yeah. it was that younger, it was the generation behind us mm-hmm. that they were starting the nucleus of their friendships. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's what it comes down to. And I don't know. I know people get together. I know people probably visited the site yesterday yeah, or yeah. Saturday, yeah. um, you know, to pay their respects. Um, but, you know, it's a day that, uh, again, it's ingrained in my head, and, you know, until I'm no longer here, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, there were just ways and things that had to be handled and how did we handle it? And, you know, we, it, we had to take off. I had to remove every song that had fire in it. Yes. Yes. Uh, and... Obviously, we. I vowed uh, that I would never play Great White on on my radio station again. Mm-hmm. It, I guess, when I left, it had slipped on somehow, like on a on a specialty show or something. I wasn't wow. involved when wow. it happened, wow. but yeah. um, you know, so there was there was that. But um, we had shirts because we're a rock station. We were told to get rid of all the shirts that had flames on around the logo or on mm-hmm. our sleeves mm-hmm. or on our backs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did throw them all away. I wish I had saved one. I mean, I have other t-shirts and swag from the station, but yeah. you know, um, but it was just trying to deal with it. And I, I just remember that uh, Sharon Shafino, who I replaced as music director has a great voice. And I, I want to say she sang amazing grace at the civic center at that memorial service and mm-hmm. I was there at the bottom of the steps to get her and that was like the first time uh, well it was the second time I had just lost it mm-hmm. you know and um, you know 
it's it still affects me every once in a while. I, I you know, I, I, I tear up. You know, I just, you know, I think about we won six Super Bowls. How would Doc have felt about that? You know, yeah, it's, you know, and, sucks. Uh, you know, and that's the thing. It's like he had a great sense of humor. And, and you know, I, I, I think he would have been, he would have been 60 this year. Wow. You know, yeah. still look like a kid. It was a good Portuguese blood. He was like the rest of us. He's just a passionate guy, funny guy. When it came to the radio station and mechanical stuff, you know, he's not an engineer. You know, showed up, did his show, did, you know, was a good soldier and, you know, helped us whenever we needed it. I mean, he started as a sales guy. He ended as a sales guy. I, I just wonder how more so Jeff than Mike, because Jeff was friends with Doc and there was a relationship there. And John DePietro, who was mentioned in the book, went to school with Doc and Jeff. And I guess... John had been asked something, and even though the relationship was friendly, he basically threw Jeff under the bus, I think, or was mm-hmm. willing to talk nasty about him or talk negative about him. But mm-hmm. he was a talk show host, and he was looking for something to do. Uh, yeah. But there was a, um, was it Dave Kane? I think that was his name. Dave Kane's son was underage and mm-hmm. died at the fire. Wow. Like, we don't, I don't know if he had a fake ID. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. touched upon in the book, uh, but he was angry. And I understand why, why parents would be their loved ones weren't kept safe. Yeah. I mean, I totally get it. When you put the equation together, it just goes back to ego. Yeah. Those people died, but I'll never see them again. And I'll never be in Rhode Island again. Type Mm -hmm. of thing. I have a conscience. I would feel horrible if something like that happened. I mean, I know the Dedarians were vilified. I know the night the building was still burning down. And I probably already said this during this conversation, the building was still burning and chief of police of West Warwick said, Oh yeah, they're, going to be criminally charged for this how can you say that when you have no idea what's happening we have no idea the death toll i mean and and it started there and it and it and it continued from that point on so the dedarians whether they were you know wholesome you know boy scouts or not they were the villains from day one no matter what yeah they're they're the evil club owners that rustled some feather ruffled some feathers in the neighborhood i'm sure the chief of police you know i I got i got them now money grubbing didn't give a shit about it i mean that's what people think of them yeah but isn't that most club owners that's what everybody thinks you know and there are good ones but these guys really didn't know what uh, to me reading they didn't know what they were doing no they wanted to make a quick buck because it was a good secondary market to get the bands coming up from New Jersey and Connecticut. Like and in between around. New York and wherever else they could go north. Yeah. Like yeah. if they're like if they weren't playing Boston, we were usually as far north as they would get. Maybe the western part of the state again for AAF to play the Palladium or maybe go to New Hampshire. That would pretty much be it. Because there was no market for them in Boston. You, no. you know, you're not you're not gonna play a club in, you know, there are no clubs in Quincy or the South Shore anymore that would have yeah. bands like There's that. There's like uh the club in New Bedford, you know, that they would play now. Uh, they're they're like, not going to be playing no. the paradise or no, because that again, it, it does. It comes down to Boston being a college town. Did people that went to BC and BU and all the other colleges around town in the eighties, listen to hair bands. Yeah. I'm no. pretty sure they did. Yeah. Hair bands were, you know, they were goofy as, as much as I love twisted sister, you know, how do you take D Snyder seriously when he's, you know, in drag kiss was one thing. Kiss is not a hair band. They transitioned into a hair band. They came up in a different time. They were more glam, like the New York Dolls and, and that era. You know, when you have the warrants of the world and Poison and Tora right. Tora and, yeah. you yeah. know, so many other bands. Like, I sometimes will go through my CD collection that my wife wants me to get rid of. 
and I'll stumble across a record or CD that, you know, was from the radio station or whatever. And it's a hair band. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we played one song off of this record. Bang Tango. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Or mm. Badlands, you know, yeah. I mean. Oh, come on, Jakey <laughs> Lee, stop. So there's, you know, there's there's a lot of that. And again, it could have been any one of those bands. That's, mm-hmm. you know, we saw uh, oh, Jamie Lane, the former lead singer of Warrant, who since passed. Mm-hmm. Um Scarpetti and I went to see him at some club, and I think it was after the, it was it was after the station nightclub fire. I want to say it was Lupo's, maybe, mm-hmm. or someplace smaller than that. But there was nobody there. Mm-hmm. It was a good crowd for mm-hmm. it was Rhode Island, but mm-hmm. it was maybe a hundred, hundred and fifty, maybe two hundred. I'm not even sure. Mm-hmm. But it was just him and a hired guns. Yeah, same situation. Yeah. You know, but he's someone who, you know, I I never saw that ego about him. If you're Vince Neil or Vince Neil, I bet played the station a lot. That's that's uh, a Vince Neil have. kind of room, right? He might have. Uh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Tesla played it a lot. Tesla's not one of those bands. And Tesla did. As a matter of fact, Tesla was one of the bands that played the benefit concert at, at the dunk. And um, and by the way, the, the doc was the guy that came up with. We started using it on the air as the dunk. Mm-hmm. He was like, what about the dunk? That's how we started calling it. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, but Tesla was one of those bands, and Tesla cared. D. Snyder cared. But yeah, there were egos and things involved that I am not and was not privy to because I wasn't involved with it. I was invited to go down, but I'm like, I am not going down to celebrate that way. That's just how I dealt. I mean, how much money are you going to raise? And they didn't raise a lot because there was so much bullshit going on behind the scenes. I That's bet. what sucked. I remember and, hearing about it, and it was like, it, there's a lot of tense, a lot of tension around this show. And I know what I know that Tesla was. I know that Tesla was one of those bands that was very upset with what was going on. And D. Snyder, I think, talks about it in that upcoming documentary oh, as good. well. And I think that Eddie Trunk will talk about the legend of Great White from obviously his perspective, but from being in New Jersey. I guarantee Eddie Trunk's going to talk because that's his favorite thing to do. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I like Eddie. He's okay. I've never met him. He's, he's, you know, he loves Eddie. Oh well. There are people like that in this business. Yeah. Well, thank you no, for thank chatting you. with me. It was good to see you. I mean, I'd like to hang out and chat <laughs> with you anyway, regardless yeah. of all of this. I, I miss I miss the Q division parties. I uh, miss the me rumble. Too. Me too. <laughs> you know, and, and the business that we know and love is not the same. And um, I just appreciate you having me on. I thank you for the time. Thank you so much. And I and I, I knew you would have great perspective about this because I've been talking to, you know, different people from different parts you know, different experiences or different stories about the station. You know, I have a a story that's on the periphery of everything. I was Mm -hmm. sort of in Providence, but not like you guys were. Right. To know how everything worked, to know how it happened, to hear, you know, my friends say Mm -hmm. what went on. And I never really, I didn't pry the kids. I didn't want them to relive it. I I just was worried, you know, just, we need to handle this. How do we handle it? we're here and again it was it was it was the toughest it was the toughest thing to tell mike's brother we didn't tell his father his father had called but it was the toughest thing to tell his brother that it's like we've talked to everybody they haven't seen his name anywhere that's what hurt because they had to live with that for the entire weekend you know that's Until why it was finally confirmed that's why I, we had stuff made up and it was like just never forget these people they just wanted to go to a show. That's all. They just wanted, they're just people wanting to have a good time. 
like so many of us. Like we would all love to be doing that right now. We would all love to be at a show. Sure. Hanging out. Sure. Outside of a goddamn pandemic. <laughs> all right. I'm going to let you go. Look at it. It flew by. I'm going to go feed right. my dogs. All right. all right. Thank you very much. Thank you, John Laurenti. I spoke to John via Zoom. That's why we can say it was good to see each other. Thank you for listening. This has been a very heavy storyline, as they all are. It's a very heavy burden. The death toll was very high, and it rippled. The ripple effect throughout the community was, well, innumerable, really. So many people were affected by the Station Nightclub fire in 2003. The Dadarians owned the business, the station. They did not own the building, and they were just days away from selling it. There is 18 years of hearsay about the fire, and my conclusion is that there is not one single entity at fault. There are several who are culpable in this, many more than who went to jail. In the book Trial by Fire, the book written by Scott James over his 10-year investigation, It lays out very interesting information. I know there are many involved with the fire who are not open to reading anything that the book has to say, and I understand that. And to all of you, I wish you peace. This has been an extraordinary burden to bear for the last 18 years. Thank you for listening. You can listen to Crime of the Truest Kind and all the previous 12 episodes, including the two previous Station Nightclub Fire episodes, available everywhere you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Deezer, Spotify, online at the website Crime of the Truest Kind, where you can visit the brand new merch store. I will be back with a brand new episode, brand new subject matter. But until then... Lock your goddamn doors. 